Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, another edition of The Readings and Australian Red Cross Book Club on the laws and impact of war. This session is a discussion with Walkley Award-winning journalist Andrew Quilty, focused on his book August in Kabul, which details the end of the US-backed administration in the country, as well as Quilty's own time living in Afghanistan. Here's the host of the discussion, Mari Madison. Welcome again, everyone. My name is Mari, and I host some of the events here at Readings. First and foremost, I think, before we get going any further, I would like to acknowledge on behalf of Readings, all of us here tonight or wherever we are, in the morning in some places, that we are meeting here on Indigenous land. I join you from the land of the Bunurong Bunwarung and the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation, which is here in Nam, Melbourne, and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and to the elders of all Indigenous lands and nations across this country and, indeed, across the world. I'm sure tonight is going to be an amazing conversation. I will introduce you briefly and then pass over. So Rebecca Barber is here from the Australian Red Cross book group that we have co-run with the Australian Red Cross Humanitarian Law Group, and she's in conversation tonight with Andrew Quilty, fantastic journalist, renowned journalist, (laughs) will be introduced in more detail. And I saw his book today in our store. It's August in Kabul. And it is all over Readings Carlton. So you can come and grab it from us. You can grab it online. You can grab it on whichever bookstore you're near. You can get it from a virtual bookstore. But please get it. And I just can't wait to hear this. So without further ado, I'm going to pass now over to Rebecca. Let's all sit back and enjoy this conversation. Thank you. Um, Thanks, Mari, for the introduction. And lovely to see all of you joining tonight. I want to start also by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land from which I'm joining this evening. I'm out here at uni- the University of Queensland in Brisbane, so we're on the lands of the Turrbal Jagera people. I acknowledge on behalf of the University of Queensland that the land was never ceded and is and always will be Aboriginal land. I pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. As Marie said, I'm a volunteer with the Australian Red Cross International Humanitarian Law Program. This book club has been a joint partnership with ourselves and readings for a couple of years. We hold discussions every couple of months and the idea of the book club is to find books that are first and foremost great reads, but also that provide a platform for discussion about the laws and the impact of war on civilians, which this book absolutely does. The structure of this session is that I will start by addressing a few of my own questions to Andrew, but if we do call it a book club, so I hope that by the time we get about Halfway in, we'll start to have some questions coming through in the chat and we can then turn to them. So without further ado, it is my great pleasure to introduce Andrew Quilty. Andrew Quilty is the recipient of no less than nine Walkley Awards, including the Gold Walkley for his work on Afghanistan, where he's been based since 2013. He has also received the George Polk Award, the World Press Photo Award and the Overseas Press Club of America Award for his investigation 
into massacres committed by CIA-backed Afghan militia. Augustine Kabul is his first book. It tells the story of the collapse of the Afghan government to the Taliban through the eyes of a number of Afghans from very different walks of life. So, Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Before we get stuck into the actual substance of the book, I wanted to start by asking you a couple of questions um, about your own journey and your role as a journalist. So just to kick off, you say in the epilogue um, that this wasn't the book that you originally set out to write and that there was another theme that you had been following for a few years and had been thinking to write a book about. So before we talk about the book that you did write, I thought it might be interesting to hear a little bit about the book that you had thought that you originally might write. Sure. Um, And first of all, yeah, thank you for having me. It's uh, a pleasure. Well, the book I had thought about writing since I had started speaking to uh, Melbourne Uni Press about writing a book from Afghanistan was on the topic that I had that, that had started to run through most of the work that I'd been doing in Afghanistan over the past five or six years and that was primarily based on civilian casualties of the war so the the kind of people who weren't themselves involved in the conflict, um, but who had been caught up in it nonetheless um, because of their geographical proximity to um, those who were involved in the conflict or their, um, you know, wrong place at wrong time. And uh, this was something that I felt, um, having spent nine years there in the end that had to a large extent caused the Taliban to um, become as strong as they did and as strong enough to in the end um, overrun the the uh, Republic the the Afghan government that had been supported by um, the US and and uh, the international coalition um, and had all the financial, military uh, development, financial backing um, of that international presence, but yet uh, were no match in the end for the, the this sort of determined, relatively well-disciplined um, group that that had this this very simple goal to uh, rid the country of its foreign occupiers and to bring about as we we're now uh seeing a um uh, a truly islamic state in in their mold so just to stay on this issue of civilian casualties and civilian harm because this is quite a significant theme running through your book and it's um particularly relevant for for this book club and um and the work of the red cross um you you talk a lot about civilian armies and you talk a lot about the beha- particular behaviours of um, the foreign troops and the Afghan army and a practice that you talk about in particular is the issue of night raids. I was actually in Afghanistan myself for about 10 or 12 years ago um, in, engaged in the NGO advocacy community and, you know, back then this, this issue of night raids was sort of at the top of the advocacy agenda mm. for NGOs. So just wondering if you can speak a little bit about um, those raids, like what, what were they and what did they involve mm. and, 
and their impact on the local population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, th- that time you're referring to is, was probably when they were at their height um, and both at their most uh, heavily utilised by, in particular, the, um, the, the foreign militaries and at, at their most violent and therefore uh, causing the most harm, uh, you know, on the one hand, probably bringing in the most, uh, you know, quote-unquote legitimate um, uh, enemy combatants, um, but also responsible for uh, a, an increased um, proportion of, of civilian casualties. And um, around that time, that they became so... Um, counterproductive and, and controversial that um, President Karzai at the time, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Rebecca, I think he um, he banned night raids. Is that right for a time? Yeah, I think that's correct. I, th- I think, yeah, um, they certainly, um, uh, and I think uh, for, for that reason or because of the, the, the well-known um, the, the, the well understood fact that a lot of these night raids were turning parts of the population against the government. Uh, even the, uh, the the senior senior generals in the U.S. military started to try to relook at their their tactics, and um, in an effort to, uh, I guess, not to undermine this. Um, you know what what the military terms a um, counterinsurgency operation, which involves um, more uh, tr- traditional armed forces going in, um, securing an area, and then allowing development workers, including um, uh, militaries, to to go into these areas and and bring um, infrastructure and and to establish governments. But it was. Um, this was this, you know, the, the, the this counterinsurgency was um, what um, I, th- I think the uh, a lot of what the international community understood was going on in Afghanistan. But um, you know, under the cover of darkness, you also had this these these night raids that were being conducted by the special forces units of these same militaries. Um, uh, and and you know basically a night raid is um, it's exactly as the name suggests it's a usually happens at night under the cover of darkness with a very uh, a relatively small but elite unit um, that's flown into a remote location by helicopter um, they have all the all the uh, best weapons and and equipment and um, air support hovering above them they have um, I think they have a lot less oversight because there are less people involved. Um, there's a real, uh, there's a there's a um, a culture of uh, secrecy, and um, uh, I think from what I've gleaned over the years, that this culture of impunity that that developed because um, you know the, these things were happening at night in remote locations where few journalists or um, human rights workers could could get to, um, let alone government, uh, the, the government or, or um, um, you know, the, the police or, or, or whatnot. And, um, and, you know, slowly but surely these, these areas, particularly in remote parts of Afghanistan, 
started to turn against the government. You know, a lot of them probably were, were already against the government, but, um, you know, and, and as um, uh, civilians who were um, wrongly targeted or, or um, killed or injured um, as, uh, you know, as, you know, so-called collateral damage um, in, in these raids, uh, it, 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 it obligated those who had been affected or those who had survived to, um, in many cases, take up arms against against the government. So Safi has informed us that Karzai did make an order on night raids in 2014. So in, 2014. In 2014. So we're talking about night raids, but... Night raids are certainly not the only military tactic that you talk about in your book that resulted in um, significant civilian harm and you, you describe in your book as undermining support um, for the international, the Afghan um, forces and the international military effort. Um, can you talk us about some of those other practices that you talk about in your book that resulted in um, significant <laughs> civilian harm? I mean, I think... Overall, the the general feeling that comes with a, depending on your perspective, um, and and for many within Afghanistan, the the foreign uh, intervention, the foreign presence in Afghanistan, after several years, started to feel like an occupation, and. You know, it's it's very hard, uh, and and this is this is a little more subtle than the the civilian casualties issue, but it I think it it contributed to it in in that the the presence that had been initially probably widely welcomed um, once it once once the you know clock started um, ticking and the years started ticking by and the the foreigners were still there driving around in the huge the gargantuan um, armored vehicles, um, wearing their their military fatigues and walking through villages heavily armed. I, I mean, it just visually, it's very hard to get past um, that being anything other than um, an enforced occupation. Even if they are there ostensibly to help to bring security, it just doesn't look good and it doesn't feel good. And I. I mean, I, I was explaining this to someone. Sorry, I'm getting a bit off track here, but um, I think it's still pertinent. Um, I was explaining this to someone the other day, um, the, the difference between perspectives um, for me when I have been, on the one hand, a, um, a, a civilian, um, you know, albeit an outsider living in the community in Afghanistan, um, walking the streets, um, shopping on the streets, um, taking photos, whatever it is I'm doing as a civilian, when a, an international military convoy would drive past, it was impossible not to look at them with suspicion. When I was inside those vehicles, as I had been on a few occasions um, doing what we call um, journalist embeds, I conversely felt like a target I, I, it, because you are in the in these vehicles you're closed off from the outside you have weapons pointing at everyone because you're suspicious of them or the soldiers you're with are suspicious of them um, and everyone feels like a target everyone feels like a threat 
it's it just creates this really um, this gap between the the forces who are there to supposedly protect and and those who the, who they are there to to protect um, and um, which is which is really difficult to it's a very difficult gap to bridge when when those are the the, the dynamics um, on, on the street in in public areas the the other main um, uh, factor that resulted in a lot of civilian casualties I presume you're referring Rebecca to um, airstrikes yeah you talk about airstrikes had a bit in your book I was referring to yeah I was alluding to that so. yeah and they and night raids and airstrikes often worked hand in hand because um, these, these night raids as I said were conducted by elite special forces who rather than going in with huge numbers they would go in in very discreet groups but they would have overwhelming air support which would um, bolster their uh, th their fighting power um, without having to um, uh, bring you know scores of of, um, of you know, boots on the ground um, and you mentioned before a culture of impunity did you I mean these both the issue of night raids and and air raids um, airstrikes sorry did did get a, a, like a lot of criticism and a lot of advocacy and a lot of coverage did you? In, in sort of in your reporting, see any changes in accountability um, and that culture of impunity um, over the years? Look, uh, whenever I would put a, a case of civilian casualties caused by American airstrikes, and they almost uh, always were American after 2014, which is around the time I arrived there, um, unless they were uh, Afghan Air Force, um, every every time I would get a response, and that wasn't always, um, it, it would be that the US military takes uh, the issue of civilian casualties very seriously and um, no military in the history of the, the world has ever um, paid as much attention to um, preventing harm to civilians. Um, and, look, that, that may be so. I, I, I can't refute that um i think um and and having seen how uh some american forces operate on the ground and how they and, and the checks and balances that they have to go through to get airstrikes cleared um i mean there certainly are checks and balances which which would prevent the the kind of civilian casualties that would be caused if, if they didn't exist. Um, and in some cases, I, I have been with um, American forces who have been incredibly frustrated with, you know, what they saw as, as hoops they had to jump through to get approval for um, what they believed was a, a very legitimate um, uh, airstrike target. Um I, th I think the problem problem often occurs in more kinetic environments when um, when there's less time for these uh, for, for surveillance to be con conducted. Um, but ha having said that, you know, there's been many occasions where um, where, where there's been a, a relatively uh, stationary um, so-called target, 
um, where the intelligence has been bad and and um, the wrong person, um, well, the, a, a deliberate strike um, targeting the, the the wrong person. Um, so, I mean, to answer your question, I, I think um, I think. Uh, look, w- w- one good example of this was was the very last airstrike conducted in Afghanistan before US troops withdrew, and that actually happened in the centre of, of Kabul while the evacuation was taking place at the airport. Um, and it was conducted um, against a man they thought was planning a, uh, a suicide attack on the airport. Um, and they had been surveilling this man for several hours, um, possibly even um, half a day or more. And um, when when the all clear was given to make this this strike with a Hellfire missile fired from a, a a drone, it turned out that the the man was a um, the, the office that he had left, which they thought was you know a, a, an ISIS. Um, Safe house had been the office of a um, an American and South Korean NGO, and the man had left there in the afternoon to go home to to his family. Um, when he pulled into the the driveway of his home, um, his children came came to greet him in the car, and that was when the the Hellfire missile struck, and ten people were killed, including the, the father and and eight children in the house, and. So I think it's just, um, I mean, the 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 reliance in this case on a you know this technology which is is hard to fathom is still very fallible. Um, I mean, you know, I, I could have gone, I, I could have, you know, if, if if someone had called me and said, go and look at this house, like what's going on in there, I, I, you know, I probably could have, you know, told them within two, two minutes that. Like this wasn't what they thought it was. Um, so it's very fallible, despite all the all the um, state of the art technology they have. And and again, it's just. Um, I mean, it was a very sadly fitting um, uh, event um, that, that that coincided with the the departure um, in the final days. Just to to go back um, to some of the issues that you talk about in the the contextual issues that you talk about in the beginning of the book, um, you come back quite a few times to the Doha Agreement. Sure. So the the Doha Agreement was signed by, between the the American government under uh, Trump at the time and the Taliban. Um, in uh, early 2020, and the agreement, much to the the consternation of the Afghan government at the time, who, as we said, um, were excluded from the agreement um, because the the Taliban had always uh, described the Afghan government as illegitimate and puppets of the Americans, and therefore they were not willing to be part of any discussions that involved the the Afghan government. So um, in the end, um, I mean, look, I mean, this, this is subjective and it, and it, it is, um, this is, I, I will caveat this, that it is my opinion that um, uh, the Trump administration at the time really rushed the negotiation of this agreement through in order, I suspect, to um, uh, 
for, for political pur- for domestic political purposes. So he could say that he had ended the war in Afghanistan as as his um, uh, two predecessors had Obama and Bush before him, um, and um, in time for the 2020 election um, later that year, and. Um, so basically, you had um, the, the the U.S. government. I think um, gave away a lot of the leverage that they had over the Taliban um, in order to get this deal signed. It, it it basically mandated that the Taliban disavow Al Qaeda and any other uh, terrorist groups um, with with um, international ambitions. That it um, uh, my mind's gone blank. Someone else can probably help me here. Um, uh, that it agreed to commence talks with the Afghan government, and um, and there are a number of other. There are a couple of other things which are escaping me now. In return, the U.S. government would—they um, agreed to a, a timeline for withdrawal, which was um, for about eighteen months. After that, which uh, brought it to August, September, twenty twenty-one. And um, there are a few other bits and pieces that, um, uh, like uh, the uh the the afghan government and the taliban as i said would have to agree to commence talks there would also be um uh, prisoner exchanges that were weighed heavily in the taliban's favor so it was uh i think that the taliban would get uh, 5000 prisoners released in exchange for a thousand uh, um afghan government security forces and it, it was seen by and large as a bit of a capitulation by the americans um and uh, the, the Taliban very much saw it as uh, as as victory, um, although the American and international forces wouldn't um, ha- weren't planning on leaving um, or hadn't broadcast leaving um, for another eighteen months. The Taliban saw saw this as um, you know the, the final um, the, the final months that they would have foreign forces occupying their country. And um, I suspect, and a lot of people suspected at the time, that although um, in the 18 months that followed, they there was a lot of conciliatory rhetoric um, towards the Afghan government and um, those who had supported the government and the foreign forces in that time, that they were doing this to make the Americans, make the foreign forces, anyone who had been involved um, in in the war, uh, feel better about leaving, feel as though they weren't just handing the country over to the Taliban, over to this this very ultra-conservative group who had ruled the country, who who they had initially gone into um, unseat from power. And 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 i think that that worked by and large the taliban were they did play a very smart uh, public relations game which i think a lot of people in the west were appeased by but which the people in afghanistan who had supported the the former republican government were not fooled by and I mean, I will even admit at the time I wanted to believe the Taliban because I, I could see that it was 
it was a matter of when, not if, the Taliban were going to come back. And once the, um, particularly the air support that the Americans had been providing um, was no longer available to, available to the Afghan security forces, it was going to be very difficult for them to hold the Taliban back. And I thought, okay, it's it's inevitable. They're going to come back. Um, you know, whether it was in a matter of months or years, they were going to come back. And I was just hoping that the the Taliban 2.0 was going to have modernised and, and reformed. And I was told time and time again by, by friends, by Afghan friends, they said, you just wait. You know, we've seen this before. Um, and, and, you know, last time, the, when the Taliban initially arrived in, in Kabul um, in 1996, they were welcomed because what had come before that was so abhorrent. Um, there was uh, the, the country basically was it was a failed state at this point. There was there was barely any functioning government. There were no services. Poverty was extreme. Um, the economy was non-existent. And the Taliban were going to bring um, law and order and and you know. Uh, so they said, you know, government um, to to Kabul and to the country, and and initially they were welcomed, um, but you know, slowly, slowly but surely, they um, you know started cracking down on dissent, and and it became um, you know m- much like we're seeing today. Um, I, I should say what we are seeing today is slowly but surely again seems to be going back to this this Taliban of old that we um, that the Afghans know and fear. You mentioned um, before the morale of the Afghan um, national security forces and I think this is one of the really interesting um, insights in your book. A couple of your um, main characters are captains in the Afghan National Army. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us a bit about um, what you describe in your book about their situation in the final, um, the, the months leading up to the fall of the Afghan, Afghan government and, and the, the situation with their, their morale? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, um, um, Captain Suleiman was is one of those captains you're talking about who was in the Afghan National Army and in the, the months leading up to the, the fall of Kabul, he was stationed in a, a very small outpost in a, a province called Maidan Wadak, um, uh, probably only two hours' drive from from Kabul. And his job was to, was to secure a a road running through um, th- this district that he was in um, between um, a major highway and and the district capital where the government still held on to this very small portion of of territory um, which the, which the central government used to uh, purport to be in control of this area when in actual fact they controlled you know a, a, basically a, a block of territory um, and provided very little um, governance to the community, but it was enough that the, the government in Kabul was able to say, well, we, we have a presence here, so we're in control. We have our flag planted. And so Captain Suleiman was there to protect the the road leading to this, this um, district capital 
um, which would allow supplies and and um, personnel to get to and from it. Um, it became very clear um, soon after he was um, flown in to this outpost that the situation was pretty dire and um, not only was it getting increasingly difficult to supply the, the district centre that he was trying to protect, it was difficult to even get supplies and uh, personnel to his little outpost um, and eventually the only way he could was by helicopter and by helicopter at night. Um, because the outpost, which was um, on the top of a, a cone-shaped hill, um, was surrounded by the Taliban, and um, that they had basically they were laying siege to his outpost, and they were um, firing on them constantly. They were firing on um, helicopters when they were doing uh, supply drops. And they were also doing um, psychological operations. They were they were trying to coax the soldiers um, out to to hand over their weapons and to um, uh, in exchange for amnesty from the Taliban. And um, so so Captain Suleiman was really up against that. He was calling for. Um, for air support, both um, to to give them some breathing space militarily, and um, at one point they ran out of they ran out of water. They started drinking um, water from the, the the radiators of the armored vehicles um, that they had in the in the outpost. Um, they were sustaining injuries because the, the their um, sorry they were sustaining injuries that couldn't be treated because they couldn't get um, medifac helicopters in to take out the the wounded and they couldn't take them out by road and um, so they started with the, with the help of some locals who were who acted as go betweens between the Taliban and Captain Suleiman they started negotiating um, and this was in the interest also of the of the locals who had been you know who were um, like we were saying before they were uh, basically living on the front lines and and it, it wasn't in their interest for a for an all-out battle for this this outpost um, it made it very difficult for them to do their farming to um, for the children to walk to school um, and so so on, and and so the locals started to um, work as brokers between the Taliban and the Afghan National Army and Captain Suleiman. And um, I won't, I won't, um, I won't um, spoil the story um, for those who haven't haven't read it. But um, yeah, that was the kind of dynamic that was playing out um, uh, across wide parts of, of Afghanistan. And um, as you mentioned, it had a large part to do with the decreasing morale of the Afghan um, government's forces. Um, they didn't feel they were getting the support they needed from, from their government. And so in the end, they were faced to um, consider the prospect um, of, of surrendering. So a lot of your book, Andrew, and I think sort of some of the most gripping parts of it centre around the 15th of August, the day that the... the um, Taliban walked into Kabul and you tell the story of this day through the eyes of your Afghan characters. But I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about what this day actually involved for you. Oh, it was, um, yeah, where to begin? I mean, it, well, first of all, we didn't know what was going to happen 
was going to happen that day. Um, it it was looking increasingly likely that the Taliban were going to have the city surrounded on all sides within a matter of days. Um, but it wasn't a foregone conclusion that it was going to be the 15th of August. So when we woke up that morning, um, after not much sleep the night before, I'd been up late trying to book uh, flights out. Um, I, I'd, um, I mean, it, at this stage, it was still my intention to stay, but I wanted to book some flights just so I had them in my back pocket in case um, the situation deteriorated to the extent that I didn't want to be around anymore. And so I booked a couple of flights for the the following days, um, and um, and so the next morning, um, and I'd been up with friends the night before, and we were talking and um, reminiscing and talking about plans. And there was a lot of there was a lot of tears. I mean, I was there with friends who um, realised that we were on the the, the precipice of um, a, a huge change in Kabul. The, the Kabul that we had grown to know and love over the the years prior was was going to it looked um it looked like disappear. And so it was a very yeah it was a very emotional time. Um and a lot of people still didn't know a lot of my friends still didn't know whether they were going to stay or leave. Um, Afghan friends were extremely nervous and and frightened at this point. Um, so there was a lot of phone calls and communication being made about trying to trying to help those that we could to um, make a plan to to get out of the country in the event that the Taliban arrived. And so th- this was sort of the background. Um, but but waking up that morning, um, th- the first thing I did, the first. Um, out of the ordinary thing I, I did was um, because I had a flight booked for the following day, um, it being, you know, the COVID era, I had to get a PCR test done. So at 10 a.m. that morning, I went to a, um, a medical clinic to, you know, get the my brain scratched um, with, a, with a friend. Um, and we walked out at 10.30, walked, walking back home. And we could hear uh, gunshots um, in in the distance. And along with the gunshots, we we saw um, people people running in the streets, running away from the gunshots towards the direction we were walking, and traffic turning around in the middle of the street and and um, returning from the way that they'd come. It turned out that this was only this was gunfire from security guards out the front of banks who were trying to control crowds who were trying to get into to withdraw their savings, but it but it seemed to happen in a lot of places across Kabul at the same time, and for whatever reason, I think because everyone was um, at such a heightened level of of um, of nervousness um, with, with the slow the slow creep of the Taliban over the, the months prior, which had quickened in the in the days and weeks before, that it just broke everyone's morale like that, and and so not only did you have um, people you know leaving their offices and leaving the streets and returning to be with their families at home, you started seeing members of the security forces, so police and and soldiers abandoning their posts, um, removing their uniforms, um, leaving the keys in the ignition of their armoured vehicles and 
abandoning ship and um, blending, walking off, blending into the into the community, in the hope that they wouldn't be recognised as members of the the government security forces. And this sort of slowly happened over the well, it wasn't slow at all, but I mean, it it happened over the course of the next few hours. Um, at which time. I was operating with a friend on that day who was staying at my house, an American photojournalist, um, and we were kind of teaming up. And we were, I mean, it was very hard to keep abreast of what was going on. And we were trying to, on the one hand, to photograph what was happening and on the other, work out what we ourselves were going to do and what our friends were doing. And um, a lot of our friends, particularly those who were not journalists, were um uh, starting to make efforts to to get out of the country um they were mostly my foreign friends they were they were heading for their embassies or the embassies of um allied country uh, countries in order to get airlifted from there to the US embassy from the US embassy to the to the airport as the city started to become more and more lawless um so at the same time you also had a lot of um lawlessness there was a lot of looting started people walking around the city armed, um, looking for, you know, uh, opportunistic, um, for opportunities for, you know, robbery and, and so on. Um, there was a very, it was a really um, quite a scary, eerie, I mean, the streets were quite quiet um, after after the initial gridlock that had um uh, that had come with the uh, after these the, the gunshots and the and the um, everyone rushing for their homes and their families, and in many cases for the airport. Um, after a while, the streets got largely deserted, um, and I mean, as as a foreigner at that point, um, me and Victor, my my other photojournalist friend and colleague, we felt very vulnerable. Um, I mean, Afghanistan is an incredibly welcoming hospitable country um, for the most part and so it was very strange to feel so unwelcome at this point Um, and I think you know this this was under the specter of of American aircraft doing laps between the embassy and the and and the sorry the embassy and the airport ferrying um, uh, embassy officials and um and American citizens uh, to the airport. And there was a real sense of abandonment on this day and everyone could feel it. And as, you know, one of the few foreigners that were still existing in the in the streets, it really felt like there was a lot of hostility. And, uh, yeah, so at one point, Victor and I were outside the U.S. Embassy um, photographing the helicopters flying over and someone saw us and they went over to my motorcycle and they pulled out a knife and cut the, uh, grabbed a handful of leads and, and tried to cut the leads and um, all sorts of very strange um, happenings like that. Um, so we, uh, um, soon after that, we yeah, we got pretty rattled by a few of these exchanges um we headed for home and just wanted to kind of take stock and find out where our friends were find out what was going on you know check twitter is one does you know um, in this day and age it's it's the easiest way quickest way to to find out what's going on with in a broad sense um in in the city in which you live and it was a couple of hours later 
um, as we sort of tried to work out what we were going to do, we we felt um, we were living on a street that had security um, uh, that was protecting the UN. Um, as we'd driven back to our our house, we saw the UN evacuating, and we thought, okay, this is this is not good. Um, the security's going to leave, and we're going to be very vulnerable to looters. Um, they know that um, you know the UN had a, a compound in this street looters are going to go straight for there and we're, we're across the road we'll be next so we started looking for a a house of a friend that we could stay in that would be more secure and then at one point we sort of looked at each other and we realized that all the street noise that we'd heard um that morning had had disappeared and we sort of you know walked outside opened the gate and and looked down the street and the street was just deserted and so we we got on the bike again and we headed out just to see what we could find. We we're very nervous as well. We weren't um, we dressed um, locally and put helmets on, so we weren't um, easily identifiable as foreigners. Um, we stopped a couple of times, took some photos, but we're very very skittish, very nervous. Um, and so we kept driving, and then at one point we saw a, a group of people gathered by the side of the road and. We sort of, as we got closer, I was looking and I said, "They're Taliban." And without thinking, I I pulled over to the side of the road, um, and and walked over to this group. There were two Taliban sitting on the back of a motorcycle, and people gathered around them, and they were there talking to these Talibs, taking selfies with them, and we we approached as if. You know, we were meant to be there. We were, um, we looked as, you know, we tried to, our body language was positive. It wasn't like, oh, we're scared of you people. It's like, you know, admittedly, we were there like these other um, Afghan civilians were, um, welcoming them in a sense. I mean, at least that's how we were making ourselves out to appear um, for our own you know, safety, I suppose. And and we asked if we could take some photos and we did. And then they raced off and sort of gave chase and then got to a, an intersection um, where the, the traffic backed up. And sure enough, it, it was backed up because there was uh, up ahead, there were a couple of cars and then a, an American made uh, armored Humvee full of Taliban fighters um, sitting on the roof, sitting on the bonnet, holding weapons, holding Taliban flags, and again, we pulled over, um, parked the bike. I thought, oh, there's no way that bike will be there when we get back. But we we thought this, you know, this is a huge moment. And um, and again, we felt very vulnerable as foreigners. We thought there's it's hard to know how they'll react. But because up until that point, we had been um, tantamount to invaders, um, even as journalists at that point. But my sense was that when this moment came that that dynamic would shift very quickly and that um if the taliban um as long as they were no longer fighting for control they would feel as though they had a duty of of care of responsibility to the citizens and the residents of kabul and and so again we just acted like we were supposed to be there and as though it was nothing out of the ordinary. And these were, you know, there were a dozen Talibs there all armed, um, all probably tired after days of without days and nights without sleep as they approached Kabul. 
and we we followed them as they sort of made their way through the traffic and photographing them and people were cheering them and I don't think it was necessarily because they were glad the Taliban were there. I think there was, there was this nervous energy. There was um, probably a bit of relief. So we have a question from Safi. Um, he says mm-hmm. he's remembering some of your tweets um, from the day, from the 15th of August, and you tweeted apparently that you were hoping that the Taliban would prove their sceptics wrong. And I also just noted um, something you said just before about um, the, what you hoped for as a duty of care that the Taliban would show um, mm-hmm. the Afghan civilians. So Safi's question is wondering what, what you were hoping for from what you refer to as Taliban 2.0? Well, look, I, I suppose I was just hoping that they would have moderated their positions on, um, you know, p- particularly the um, their social policies, um, particularly towards, towards women. Um, um, I was also, I was also hopeful that they would they would honour the amnesty that they had sworn they would give to members of the Afghan security forces and and um, members of the government. Um, again, this was something that I was told by Afghan friends to be very sceptical of. And, I mean, I don't think... My sense is not that the Taliban have gone and done mass roundups of um, former soldiers and police. That's that's not the case, but they certainly have gone after um, uh, more senior members of the security forces, members of um, special forces units, um, and then there has certainly been. Um, more personal uh, vendettas, scores, score settling, and the and and the like, which has happened, you know, perhaps not under um, orders from the Taliban, but um, under the new circumstances, which allow that kind of thing to happen. Um, but the, something I, I I think is important to note is that this kind of thing went on in reverse in the um, in the early days of the the US led war, um, where you know, the, the Taliban were on the run, um, you know, members of the, the, the Taliban's, um, you, know, you know, civil service, um, uh, government workers and and their fighters were, were on the run and um, had lost all their power and their, their influence and um, the, um, the, the, the fear that they used so well against the population no longer existed. And um, you had the... the um, the the Afghan militias um, and the uh, resistance forces that the US were partnering with, who were coming in and filling that that vacuum, and you know seeking out vengeance of their own um, um, under the authority of the the um, American um, uh, presence, and and then you saw the American inter- international forces doing it themselves. So it's it's um, you know, I think we have to be careful to um, cast the the blame on. You know, I'm certainly not defending um, any uh, vengeance or um, retaliation that the Taliban are uh, meting out now, but uh, we have to remember that that this was done um, in in reverse uh, 20 years ago, and and has been. Um, you know, many times over in these transition periods in Afghanistan, you know, as as in um, other places around the world. 
We are, unfortunately, at time, which is such a shame because I feel like there's so many other questions. But maybe just to sort of to close, um, Andrew, this must be quite an unsettling time for you because Afghanistan was obviously home for you. I think you were there for eight or nine years. So I wonder if you could just, just in a couple of minutes, like, you know, is the Afghanistan chapter closed for you? Will you continue to to write about it from a from afar, do you have a? Do you think you will go back there? What's what's the next what's the next project for you? Um, I, I went back there in in May this year to pack up my things, pack up my house, and and say goodbye. Um, and I was I was pretty heartbroken um, seeing Kabul and and Afghanistan uh, the the way that it had changed. Um, without the community that I had I had become a part of and and built over the um the nine or ten years I'd been there. And I you know, I the analogy I always use is um this, this period for me now is, is like the aftermath of a of a bad relationship where I you know with a very messy a messy divorce where we just have to cut ties for a while you know, reflect and, um, and, and to the point that, you know, those, those good memories start to, um, uh, come back and, and supplant the, the, the very you know, traumatic memories of, of more recent times, um, to the point that, you know, one day we can, we can be friends again. And, um, at which point, uh, yeah, I'd love to go back, but I, I'm, I'm sort of forcing myself to spend some time away for now. All right. So that's a good note to leave it. Hopefully you and Afghanistan will be able to be friends again <laughs> at some point in the future. So thank you so much for speaking so candidly and sharing your um, wonderful insights. I do, again, recommend you all buy the book. Um, it is for any, anyone interested in, in Afghanistan. And I think it's really a must read. Thanks, everyone, so much for joining us and for your questions. I'm so sorry we didn't get to all of them. And... Thank you, Readings, as always, for providing the platform. Thank you again, and thank you, all of you. Thank you, Rebecca, for your questions. Thank you, Andrew, for your answers. Uh, And thank you both for being here. And thank you, everyone, for attending. It's been a fantastic year of book group discussions and hope to see you at future ones. Thanks, Mary. Thanks, Beck. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings podcast at our website, We'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I would like to acknowledge traditional owners of this land and to pay my earnest respects to elders past, present, and those to come. Thank you.